Welcome to Forging Plowshares, a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom of God. We hope this part of our ongoing conversation stimulates your mind and challenges your heart about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. How long have you been following us? Six months or so, I'm going to say. Okay. I got in touch with you pretty pretty soon after I came across you. I, uh, it, it really hit. It really resonated. I guess I'll say. Good. Good. <laughs> yeah. Have the other participants? They've been in other of your classes. Yeah, most of them have. Some have not. Dave Rawls, in fact, is practically a professional. <laughs> professional what? That's that's the question. <laughs> Dave actually graduated. He completed all of our classes. Good to see you, Jim. How you doing? Hey. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Yeah. Tim, good to see you again. It's been a while since I've been on a Zoom meeting. I'm just trying to figure out all the clickies again. <laughs> yeah, and clickies are confusing. Yeah, yeah. Nope. Doing not too bad. How are you all doing? I'm great. I'm great. I think all of you maybe know one another other than Brent. Is that true? Hi, Brent. I'm Jim. I wish I could grow a beard and mustache like that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm still Jim. working on mine. I'm a, I'm a newbie. Have you done uh, three classes now? Is this is number four. I or think. number four. Okay. By the time we're done a class, I'm ready to start learning what we're talking about. I was telling Brent, I'm hoping to lay a kind of a foundation for everything that we're doing. So I'm not I'm not going to make any sudden moves on you. All right. Well, Brent, I'm Dave Rawls. I uh, I don't know where you're at in the world. But I'm in Indiana. I'm in uh, southern Iowa, a town called Keokuk. Very southern Iowa, actually. I'm Tim. Uh, I was just looking. I think this must be my sixth or seventh course. And I'm in, uh, up, I'm neighbors to the north. I'm up in the west coast of Canada, Vancouver. Uh, well, it's a pleasure to meet you all. Hi, Brent. I'm actually a friend of a lot of these guys, and we've been doing class together for a while now. I live in Michigan, and... Started the church back five years ago. We just had our fifth year birthday party last Sunday. That's congratulations. I got three kids sleeping. Praise the Lord. <laughs> Austin is very bountiful in God's blessings. Hey, everybody. And hello, Brant. Nice to meet you. I am Brian Sarter. I live in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, but I'm in transition to move two hours down the road to Charlotte, North Carolina. My wife and I have couple of kids still here looking for places to live and graduating from high school. And so we have a couple of older kids too. We're a blended family. And I've been taking Paul's courses for, this is my fourth course. So last year around this time, I guess was when I was starting to actively participate. Although I found out I've been listening to lots of courses after the fact on podcasts. I am a healthcare chaplain just all around enjoying what I'm learning and loving talking about it with y'all and thinking about it together. This is exciting. I guess this is the first Pauline epistle course I've taken with Paul Axton. All right. It's a good one, I think. I think Matt Von Schuch, his son's in a JV basketball. That's what they're playing now, right? Basketball game. I get my sports mixed up. The one with the round ball. The one with the hoop, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Paul, to not to not know sports, that's borderline heretic, heresy. <laughs> Shocking. I'm very particular about my sports. Yeah, so. 
let me say a few things as a kind of introduction. And in this instance, the introduction is kind of uh, key, because the way that we're going to read Ephesians is that this is Paul's gospel without a problem of uh, arising. In other words, he's just writing this gospel, summing up his gospel, and it's not an occasional letter, as you can say about every other of Paul's epistles. Now, as you know, if if you've done the, the usual route, that the usual thing is to be quite dismissive of Pauline authorship. And it's not that I'm saying, oh, if, if Paul didn't write it, that that's, oh, we can't accept it. But in this instance, I'm going to argue that it is Paul, and that we're going to place it early, and we're going to place it centrally. And I think this, in fact, will affect the way we read all of Paul. And I'm going to explain why. The last couple of my blogs referenced Origen, and Origen says that Ephesians is the center of Paul's thought. That is, in fact, seemingly the consensus of the early church. Richard Layton says this epistle is the spiritual heart of Paul's letters. Both Origen and Jerome, you know, we really don't have Origen's commentary on Ephesians other than through Jerome and some fragments. So when I say, I'll just say Origen and Jerome, because in the commentary we have, we can kind of sort out who's who. This is a quote, Ephesians, that epistle of the apostle which stands in the middle of, in concepts as well as order. Now I say middle not because it comes after the first epistles and is longer than the final ones, but in the sense that the heart of an animal is in its midsection, so that you might understand from this magnitude of the difficulties and the profundity of the questions it contains. Ephesians is not an easy book to get, you know, even in Origen's understanding, but I think it's key that Origen sees this as the center of Paul's thought. Of course, this is going to influence Origen's theology. I'm going to talk about this here in a minute. So Ernest Best, he shows that Ignatius, Polycarp, Clement of Rome, Hermas, and other apostolic authors also used it and saw it as key. F.F. Bruce, I'm jumping from ancient to modern here, described the letter as the quintessence of Paulinism. And then Bruce quotes Dodd, who calls it the crown of Paulinism. T. Wright puts it front and center. I have that introduction from Wright. So the question is, well, what happened? And this is, you know, with the Reformation and the modern quest that followed it and reading Paul through a Lutheran works righteousness sort of understanding, it came to be read as a distinct letter from the other Pauline letters saying, oh, well, maybe it's late, maybe it's pseudo-Pauline, or they've gathered up fragments of Paul. And so this is a quote from N.T. Wright that I thought was interesting. He said, if the Reformers had taken Ephesians rather than Galatians and Romans as their main set of texts, the entire course of Western history may have been different. In Ephesians 1.10, Paul says something which many Western Christians have never grasped, that the whole point of what God was doing to sum up everything in heaven on earth in the Messiah, in Christ. 
And so th this is the picture of salvation. It is the picture of atonement, we could almost say. The coming together of everything in heaven and earth. And Wright calls this Paul's temple theology. Coming off the Gospel of John, where we saw the centrality of the temple and the temple as a kind of microcosmos. Uh, in other words, here is the presence of God, the saving presence of God. But in this case, the temple is replaced by the church in whom the living God, uh, the living human being are one. And as a result, God's determination to, I'm still quoting right, to bring together heaven and earth in one reality the life of those humans who find themselves caught up in this purpose is not only radically changed, but directed outwards. Now, this is a little unusual for Wright, because Wright, I, I'm never quite sure how to locate him, but it's clearly those theologians that are apocalyptic theologians, uh, and this is the way I would characterize Douglas Campbell. Campbell is also going to, Campbell, I don't know if you're familiar with, is now at Duke University. And he's written a, a book on, called Reframing Paul. And I imagine, Tim, you've read it and can run it down for us. Uh, I think it's pretty complicated. His point is that we understand Paul through the whole Pauline corpus. And if we misunderstand the Pauline corpus, we're going to misunderstand Paul, which is, of course, exactly what we're saying in this class. If Ephesians is early and front and center, this is going to be our guide to reading the rest of Paul. And so both Wright and Campbell argue that we ought to be suspicious of a higher critical understanding, you know, the whole German scholarship and the idea of a, a Lutheran understanding. And in a Lutheranism, you know, what the focus in Ephesians on ecclesiology, on the church, the focus on in Lutheranism, a kind of negative view in Judaism is absent, and the view of Christ, a very high view of Christ, whereas in the other letters, you know, of typical Lutheranism, uh, it would be a kind of low Christology, and a high view of nature. Uh, even here we lose Karl Barth, you know, Karl Barth's famous nine or no to natural theology, or uh, the understanding of a, a, a high view of the cosmic understanding. What you get in Ephesians is, I think, true to what you get in the rest of the of Paul, which is absent in a Lutheran Reformed understanding, is that creation continues in Christ, that it's cosmic. I miss that something is absent in a Lutheran viewpoint. The notion that creation continues through Christ. In other words, the Lutheran understanding is on works over and against faith and a kind of departure from the world going to heaven. It's on a legal uh, righteousness. So when we say being made right, the focus is a, a kind of legal fiction. But I think that this is the problem that you're, that there is this part of the reason that Ephesians is going to be problematic for a Reformed theologian, because it's picturing a cosmic salvation. The other way to say this is universal salvation, but I, I'm almost afraid that I'll be misunderstood in saying that. I think what universal means originally, referring to the universe, that the whole cosmos is being redeemed, 
you know, there is an all-inclusiveness to it. I'm afraid what we might do with universalism is just think, oh, there's more people. Well, no, it's all-inclusive of creation. And that's true in, in Ephesians. You know, the thing that, that people will do with the uh, books, you know, they'll say, well, Ephesians is different, not just in theology, but in vocabulary. And I think this just turns out not to be true either. H. H. Uh, J. Cadbury says, which is more likely that an imitator of Paul in the first century composed a writing 90 or 95 percent in accordance with Paul's style, or that Paul himself wrote a letter diverging 5 or 10 percent from his usual style. So th this is the thing I heard all my, you know, seminary years. Oh, well, Ephesians sounds different. And people who know better say, well, they're there is some vocabulary that is different, but that's true of all the Pauline books, including the ones that everybody accepts. And, and you know, what's being left out is that in those books, in Romans, Corinthians, Philippians, Paul is displaying a versatility that we know he could, that he has a range of vocabulary. I thought an interesting way to approach this, you take the arguments against why this is not Pauline, and you can almost flip them on their head. And that is that the focus that people are seeing in Ephesians, that they're saying, oh, here's a focus that we normally don't see. The first emphasis that you find in Ephesians that's, that people say, oh, look at this focus on ecclesiology. And of course, that's true. There is a strong focus on the church, and we'll go into that. But I think the point of this is, Oh, probably if we're, you know, if we're doing a Lutheran Reformed understanding, we're not going to understand that focus. There's a focus on a realized eschatology. That is that we're seated with Christ in heaven now. Does everybody know the phrase realized eschatology? That is the eschatology is about last things, uh, end times. But the idea is, well, the end times have commenced now. Not that everything has unfolded, but that they are now unfolded. So the Ephesians centered on centers on this now. That if you just the first chapter, the present tense of it, and then the Christology in Ephesians, the focus is on resurrection, exaltation, ascension, cosmic lordship, and then also the focus on Christ's death. As I think this is a part of the same thing that Ephesians is a Christus Victor sort of understanding. The principalities are defeated by Christ, and the way they're defeated is in and through the resurrection, the ascension. Certainly the death of Christ is not absent, but there is also this focus elsewhere. And then on soteriology. Paul just says in Ephesians, straightforward, we do this for good works. In other words, for a Reformed theologian, that may sound odd. My point with each of those is those are there in Ephesians, and they certainly are emphasized, and you can't miss them, but that in no way is a departure from the rest of Paul's books. You know, just based off of our reading from N.T. Wright, are we going to be talking a lot about the uniqueness of new creation through the temple imagery? That That's how we meet with God within this text too and how that cosmic salvation in christ is us joining with him through the resurrection 
I just yes. wonder if we're if we're going to get to that maybe tonight at all. Yeah, well, we we will some, but okay. that's the focus of the class is that N new temple. Brent, this may sound odd. I don't know. The idea of the temple in Judaism is that it's a kind of cosmology that God is present in the temple. And that's the way that John is talking about Christ, that Christ has come to his temple, you know, God has come to his temple in Christ, and this is salvation. And that's very much present in Ephesians. So Ephesians very much accords with that Pauline emphasis. And that is a part of the big picture that, that we're also describing. And I, I thought I would step back a little bit. You know, I don't think this is just a Reformed problem. I actually looked at an article that we read for our, it was in our last class. You know, we looked at origin, comparing origin to Augustine. And I think that comparison almost is the same thing between focus on Ephesians as central and a Reformed focus on Galatians and Romans. Let me talk about that just a little bit that in Ephesians, that, you know, it's the same thing. That Gerald, This is the article by Gerald Bostock, mm -hmm. that he talks about that uh, in origin, history is charged with moral lessons of permanent meaning, and there is carried forward from age to age in education of the world. That is, the, that there is a maturing, uh, at, you know, he actually talks about recapitulation, and that the human race is coming to maturity in Christ, and and picturing the unfolding of the ages in that in that way. By contrast, in Augustine, history is more a mere succession of ex external events. I'm sure that if someone were here that is Augustinian or that likes Augustine, they might they might object to some of this. It may be that you can pit Augustine and find other places that he's. But there is certainly the, this in Augustine the tendency to pit the inward self over and against the outward self, and I think this is part of Constantinianism. And of course, he's also going to, to posit the notion of original sin. Now, what does he mean by original sin? I think it is something on the order, if not completely, at least on the order of total depravity. And the other thing in Augustine, of course, you're going to deposit the, the notion of predestination uh, and maybe double predestination. In other words, what's going to happen in Calvin is already there, at least in part, in an embryo form in Augustine. There are parts of this, you know, Augustine's not as bad as Calvin, but I think that Augustine inspires John Calvin. So for origin, life has a moral significance of incalculable value. For Augustine, life is a mere show in which actors fulfill the parts irrevocably assigned to them. In other words, the word predestined, as Matt pointed out in Hart's translation, he's just saying, well, the, the translation predestined is the wrong translation. There is no such concept. And that comes out in Ephesians, that in Ephesians, when we're talking about this foreordination, uh, the picture is that God has, I want to use the word, he's predetermined or predestined all things in Christ. 
It's not talking about, oh, he chose some and to go to hell and he chose some to go to heaven. No, he marked out beforehand what he was doing in Christ. That is, it's cosmic. Predestination is cosmic. So origin cannot rest without looking forward to a final unity. And as I'm saying all this, this just sounds like Ephesians. And Augustine acquiesces in an abiding dualism in the future. Eternal hell, eternal heaven. Not less oppressive to the moral sense than the absolute dualism of, of Manny. You know, he was he's a Manichaean. I, I love it when you slam Augustine. <laughs> I'm hearing a little a side of Augustine that's kind of lined up with determinism. Yeah, uh, in Augustine, you know, he's fighting with the Pelagius, with Pelagius, and remember that Augustine he evolves, maybe devolves, is the way we should put it. Early Augustine is better than late Augustine, and by the time he engages Pelagius, who is suggesting the notion of free will, in origin, it's also true. There is the sense of the independence of human will and choice, uh, and no notion of total depravity, no notion of incapacity for choice. So my, my point, the condemnation of origin, the condemnation of Pelagius, this problem that is going to go, come about, you know, with kind of the setting aside in Ephesians is, I think, much earlier than just the Reformation. I was uh, listening to an uh, audiobook this morning uh, uh, with uh, Brad Jerzak. He was talking about a, a, a lot of our uh, doctrines and different things, but he was, he was focused in, in on Augustine. And uh, he was uh, talking about a lot of the, you know, like uh, Augustine's double predestination and stuff. And he was heavily hinting that a lot of, a lot of doctrine comes about related to our political situation. I think we have talked about this in other classes as, as far as Augustine kind of, you know, got to a point where the church becomes invisible and because, you know, you don't want to disrupt the emperor or, you know, count him out or whatever, I guess. But if I'm correct, isn't it, does Augustine, he actually sees the collapse of Rome right in front of him, right? So you have, you have those that your, uh, you know, your country's, your world's falling apart. And so there's the enemy. Uh, I don't know if some of that would play into um, late Augustine, especially uh, double predestination. Yeah, yeah, he's Constantinian in this. You know, I'm not claiming to be any great historian here, but let, let me say this and then kind of qualify. This is the conversation you and I had, Matt, that if we had to sum up what I think the atonement theory is in Ephesians, which sounds funny, I think the apocatastasis or theosis, that's really there in Ephesians. Another way of just saying apocatastasis is Irenaeus's recapitulation. They're talking about the same thing. I know that we, we use the terms in a different fashion today, so that when people today hear apocatastasis, they think universal salvation. I think what the early church thought was recapitulation which was certainly universal, I mean, applying to the cosmos. I think with Constantinianism and with uh, Augustine's uh, direct rejection of apocatastasis, 
we're changing up and and you know we're certainly not it's certainly not the shift that we're going to get with nominalism and the reformed theology that is we're still i think that throughout christian history for most of christian history it is a participatory ontology like that that you get in apocatastasis like that that you get in theosis the word theosis you know the, this vocabulary the semantics here is partly a problem i think that you know theosis you can just go through all of the biblical words and attach those to theosis you know likeness that uh, were adopted into the family that there's many many different ways but i think that with apocatastasis and and at least the idea of recapitulation what we're describing is a coherent ontology it's not that people can't be inconsistent and hold to a participatory ontology but it no longer is consistent once you go for something like total depravity or whatever it is you know original sin however you want to describe augustine believing that and uh double predestination i think even the two cities you know the idea of an internal lies salvation i'm not saying that augustine abandoned a participatory ontology i don't know that you can be a christian and not believe in some form of that but doctrinally and philosophically by the time we come to nominalism that's really what they're denying i don't even think a good nominalist can really believe what they say they're believing that we don't have access to who god is as far as the usage you were using the word universalism as you know really the uh the recapitulation of everything right the whole universe would it be safe to say that Augustine's rebuttal to that, not necessarily the renewal of all things as much as pushback against origins, uh, universalism for humanity? Yes. Okay. I just wanted to make sure I clarify that. So he's he knows it's not true for people. And so when I'm saying the word universalism, all I mean is that this refers to the cosmos. I think it's corporate when we come to people. I think the early Christians certainly, including Origen, though he believed in an eventual universal salvation for all people, they're all still talking about people that are in some way damned. What is taking place in an Augustinian understanding, and even before Augustine, is the positing of, a, of infernalism. And so you can't have a dual, I don't think you can consistently have a dualism and still be talking about apocatastasis and recapitulation or to say it another way i'm afraid we're losing the coherence of a participatory ontology what i mean by that is just hey we participate in god and he participates in who we are that we're completed by christ this is what creation is about this is what we're about augustine was blessedly inconsistent and you may find places where he's much better. My point with all this is to say that the de-emphasis or the, the focus that you're getting in the Reformed historical criticism is not unlike that there, there is a gradual turn away from Paul's gospel. I, you know, do you want to distinguish Paul's gospel from everybody else's gospel? I don't think so. But anyway, the way that Paul's gospel is laid out 
most clearly is in the book of Ephesians. The other thing, the other issue is the problem of evil. You know, Augustine comes up with, uh, he comes out of Manichaeanism, and because of that, he turns to Plotinus, who talks about uh, privation as, and I think that's a philosophically a good definition. But the thing that we're going to do in the class is, yeah, but privation may be a great philosophical understanding, but evil certainly seems stronger than nothing. In other words, evil, when you encounter it, seems to be a real power. I think that's what we're getting in Walter Wink. Now, what you get it, the way you get it in origin is that, well, it's the devil. But remember what origin means by the devil. He uh, connects that with the rule of death, that the devil controls death. Augustine is going to attribute evil not to the powers of darkness, but to human evil. And so he took the view that humanity is a mass of damnation and responsible for all the evil in the world, while the good comes from God alone. Philosophically, a privation is fine, but at some level it's inadequate. And this is uh, the same article. His ruthless logic makes human life into a kill killing field of guilt, while his basic assumption that evil comes from human nature rests on very slim foundations. His whole edifice regarding original sin, as you all know, just rests on five texts, key one in Romans 5, which he bases on a mistranslation in the Latin Vulgate. I think what we're seeing in Ephesians is Paul's doctrine of Christus Victor, that the principalities and powers, the, the prince of the power of the air, are defeated. You know, this is, lines up with origin. At least Walter Wink, I think that Walter Wink is what he's doing for us. He doesn't believe in a, in the devil, or he doesn't, you know, and whether he believes in evil spirits, I don't know, and maybe we lose something in that. But at least he's giving us a, a picture of evil that I think in many ways is very Pauline, the, the principalities and powers. And I think this lines up with the, with Origen's notion that and Paul's notion that death is defeated in Christ, you know, that death the last enemy. And so evil is inspired and initiated in origin by the father of lies. The devil is not responsible for man's wrongdoing as such, even in origin, because man is responsible. Origin has a very high view of human free will. He does, you know, people choose. Uh, they're evil because they've chosen to be evil. Uh, and man is responsible, but the devil masquerades as an angel of light and engineers then a kind of false ideology. And so origin, like Paul, I think in Ephesians, is an exponent of Christus Victor. That is, why did what is the atonement theory of Ephesians? Well, I think it's that, that Christ in the resurrection and ascension has defeated evil, and that we reign at the right hand of God, that the evil powers of darkness, they've been defeated and are actually subject to Christ. This also fits with Wright's new temple, the, the idea of heaven come to earth, heaven coming to earth. That is, it's a realized, maybe being realized eschatology is better. Okay, that's step one. So I'm making a claim. Ephesians is the best presentation of Paul's gospel that we have in the New Testament. 
This is over and against the, the scholarship on Ephesians, other than that of Douglas Campbell and the early church. Maybe N.T. Wright is, N.T. Wright's kind of, he kind of does both things at once very often, but he has a very high view of Ephesians and thinks it's Pauline. You use the phrase that seems important, uh, participatory ontology. Um, and I was just wondering if you could define that. What does that mean? The the term apocatastasis, where is it, Matt? It occurs in Acts 3.23. The idea in Second Peter that we participate in the divine nature. But more than that, I think this is, you know, it's not just tied to that vocabulary. But I think what is being pictured, and especially in Ephesians, is this idea of participating in the divine. That is, being as Schweitzer and others, you know, this is the, the German emphasis over and against the Lutheran emphasis. I mean, if they're all Germans. Uh, but Schweitzer talks about being in Christ is the one of the primary focuses. And that's certainly true in Ephesians. That is that being identified with Christ, being the body of Christ, you know, this is the John passage that Jesus quotes Psalms, you are gods. That is that we are created to be in the family of God, to be in the fellowship with God. So we participate in him, and he participates in us, and there ain't no human being that that's not true of, but in Christ that's completed and fulfilled. I guess whenever uh, Schweitzer talks about being in Christ, you know, we want to um, be careful not to fall into a sort of nominalism uh, that, you know, that the way that you're in Christ is, is by some sort of, um, you said identification, you know, and then through some sort of, I guess, maybe justification um, through proclamation or something like this. Uh, but I think that what you're getting, uh, getting to, if I'm hearing you correctly, is that that participation is, you know, in him we live and move and have our being. Um, and the way that we do that is by through imitation. Yeah. We participate not in just in name or word only, but that we, by praxis, you know, by um, joining the church, et cetera, you know, baptism, the Eucharist, you know, however you want to run it down. But it seems important. I mean, it, it seems like, it, you know, someone listening from the outside might be like, boy, that sounds like a big fancy word, participatory ontology. I'm using the big word because when we say in his likeness, you know, there's always, you know, even in the Greek, they're going to argue, oh, what does likeness mean? And you have Lutheran, good Lutheran theologians that have come along and say, oh, that in Romans 6, you know, Paul is, the Greek word there just means, oh, we're kind of like him. Mm. And even baptism is, or the Eucharist, you know, the, oh, you just go through it. Oh, it's not really participation. It's, you know, kind of like him. Mm. This is, by the way, James Dunn. I think James Dunn is abhorrent on this topic in Romans, in spite of being, you know, part of the whole new perspective. But Dunn is typical, I think, of a Lutheran understanding that they're going to take the same language and they're going to make it mean not participatory ontology. They're going to make it mean, oh, we kind of look like him. But actually, it's a, a legal fiction, that it's an imputed righteousness. 
And so in Ephesians, by the way, one of the key terms is walk. We walk as Christ walked. Oh, I think that means that that is an ethic that we take up. But for Luther and Luther, you know, they don't want to have any works in there. Uh, Even the term faith, we've lost the meaning of the term faith. It means, for many people, faith in Christ. But what it actually usually means is not faith in Christ, but the faith of Christ. Or even faith Our faith is that of Christ. He's the faithful one. Hmm. It's not our faith that accomplishes, you know, anything. It's the faith of Christ that accomplishes adherence to the covenant, if you want to put it that way. I guess another way to ask it would be, what's the antithesis to a participatory ontology or an understanding in that sort of mode? What's what do we usually? How do we usually think of uh, what it means to be Christian? Depending on who you're talking about, but of course, nominalism is the opposite. Voluntarism is the opposite. What Lutheranism and Calvinism? You know, Luther Luther's trained as a nominalist. And that's the key. That's the key thing to understand about nominalism is that I think it really is the opposite of a participatory ontology. Does any Christian really believe that? I don't know. I think it's a terrible belief, and to believe that I think is torturous. That may be a very big difference between an academic and theological and a person in the pew sort of belief. I don't know if anybody in the pew would actually buy into nominalism, but I don't know. Not if you explain it like that, but if you if you inherited a form of the faith that teaches that uh, you know that that you you confess Christ as Lord, you say the sinner's prayer, uh, and and that those things are all good or whatever. But if it's divorced from a very particular ethic, I think Walter Wink, if I remember right, tries, you know lays out that it's connected with what it means to engage with the powers and stuff like that, justice, etc. That it can become sort of like a, a Christianity, you know, because we we've talked about this, you know, and, and I don't I, I don't know where all you guys are coming from theologically, so I promise I'm not I'm not trying to step on any toes or, or be a jerk or anything like that. But you know, that we've talked about before that it, it could be in a certain understanding of things that uh works could even become sort of almost dangerous. Yeah, no, that's right. That's right. And that that hits it that the engagement with the powers. It's not a real world overcoming of evil, and it's not a real world righteousness, and it's not a real world walk. I, I suppose that even a good Calvinist is going to put works in there somewhere. But they might not be sure why, right? It's like, right. you know, obviously we're supposed to do good to the poor. There's plenty of you know great Lutherans and, and people who are much better Christians than I am or Calvinists or whatever, but they may not be able to, I guess, I guess maybe they would say, well, we do it because... And maybe that's kind of the discussion, right? Like, because they would say, well, it's not that we, uh, because I think that what we could fall into or what you could fall into with this sort of talk is that they would just say, oh yeah, you're just saying it's all salvation by works. And that's exactly the problem. And that's why Protestantism, you know, came into being was because what you're saying is, is participatory ontology means that you have to do something. You have to, in some way, uh, am I wrong about that? But that, that's that's how my Protestant ears were sort of trained, was to say, uh, you know, I'm, you may not lay it out so clearly like, oh, it's nominalism. 
but the implications of the cross. That's so right. That's the right. atonement theology, the Christ, you know, it's it's accomplished. And we all believe that, of course. But I guess the danger on the other side, right? And this has always been the danger is that, oh, you know, you're just talking about Pelagianism. You know, you're just talking about how we can be perfected apart from Christ and that we can, you're not. But that's right, often right. The, the accusation. And I like, yeah, I like what you brought to the table here because it's key to the class. The, where this is going to make the difference is the the real world engagement with the with the powers and the real world overcoming of evil and defeat of sin and death. That becomes a kind of legal fiction in much reformed theology. Unfortunately, I'm afraid that already in Augustinianism, the focus becomes on a kind of disembodied understanding. And so that that would be another way of saying. Let me go back then. A, a way of saying the same thing and the way that Campbell lays it out is to say the difference between these two readings. And I, I'm claiming the difference between putting Ephesians center and or peripheral is the difference between contract and covenant. I think that's saying the same thing. That Paul is clearly laying out a picture of entering into the covenant, entering into the family. And this is going to pertain to everything. You know, once you're reading according to a Lutheran works righteousness, you're not going to understand a covenantal understanding. Let me do a bit of ground clearing or just laying some foundation here. I, this may be old hat for some of you, but I just wanted to say, okay, what? where did this guy Douglas Campbell come from? You know, that he, he has this strange belief that Ephesians is the center of Paul's understanding. It's the his gospel. You know, he's really almost, to, at least today, in this, the strength that he's putting on that, he's almost alone. And he himself describes his understanding as developing with about five real radical shifts that have taken place in theology. And the first has to do with uh, Crystal Stendhal's, what he calls a Lutheran understanding of Paul. And in this, you know, what's Paul's problem? Well, the Paul's problem is the same thing as Luther's problem. Luther suffered from a guilty conscience. He could, you know, he, he was literally whipping himself and he, God's righteousness was kind of sickening to him. And that's the way we read Paul. Oh, that Paul suffered from a guilty conscience. Then he meets Jesus on the road to Damascus. He finds the resolution to his problem of guilt. He finds relief, and now he's saved. That is, the Pauline picture is read through both Augustine and Luther, that Paul has a kind of introspective conscience that troubles him, uh, that he's primarily troubled with guilt, and that Christianity then is primarily about, you know, atonement is, well, Jesus paid the price for the guilt. And now he the legal requirement for the law is met, and now Paul can have a good conscience along with Luther, and, you know, maybe Augustine. Augustine is very, uh, I don't mean to be dismissive of Augustinian notion of an introspective conscience is actually quite interesting, but is that true? And what Crystal Stendhal comes along and says, that ain't true at all. 
and he just turns to Philippians 3, in which Paul is talking about his life as a Jew. He said, I kept the law flawlessly. He says, I was a Hebrew of Hebrews, a Pharisee of Pharisees. Paul didn't have a guilty conscience. He had a perfectly clean, robust, healthy conscience. And on the basis of that good conscience, he went out and was killing Christians. He never thought of himself as being short, having shortcomings. Now that then is, you know, what Stendhal is pointing out is that we have a, a, a wrong understanding. And then E.P. Sanders comes along and says, yeah, and that's a, a wrong understanding that we've also projected onto Judaism. That Judaism never had the notion of works righteousness, that you're saved through works. That's a Lutheran reading of Judaism. You know, Luther's anti, actually anti-Semitism runs for a long time in the church, and I think this is part of it, is there's the notion of kind of degraded notion of Judaism, that it's based on, oh, we got to, you know, we got to keep the works of the law, and then we get saved, and that's what Judaism is about. And that's why there's such, you know, pharisaical types. And this part, James Dunn gets right, that what is usually taken to be the Jewish alternative to Paul's gospel would have been hardly recognized as an expression of Judaism by Paul's kinsmen, according to the flesh. Sanders notes that Jewish scholars have for long been registering protest at this point. That is a kind of parody of Judaism. And so he quotes a couple of Jewish scholars, Solomon Schechter, either the theology of the rabbis must be wrong, its conception of God debasing, its leading motives materialistic and coarse, and its teachers lacking in enthusiasm and spirituality, or the apostle to the Gentiles is quite unintelligible. In other words, what he knows of Paul is that Lutheran Paul of a kind of degraded understanding of Judaism. James Parks, also a Jewish scholar, if Paul was really attacking rabbinic Judaism, then much of his argument is irrelevant, his abuse unmerited, and his conception of that which he was attacking inaccurate. We get a framing of Paul. We get an understanding, a placement of Ephesians through people like Rudolf Bultmann, Ernst Caseman, and they're both based on a Lutheran model. I think it actually goes back to F.C. Bauer. You know, he's really just doing the, the whole higher critical understanding. But the point of Sanders is that Judaism is based not on a contractual relationship. You know, the contractual relationship, you broke the law, that requires a payment. Jesus, you know, does what the law could not do. He makes the payment. He says, no, it's not contractual. It's covenantal. Here is the quote. In particular, Sanders has shown with sufficient weight of evidence that for the first century Jew, Israel's covenant relationship with God was basic, basic to the Jew's sense of national identity and to his understanding of religion. So far as we can tell now for uh, the first century Judaism, everything was an elaboration of the fundamental axiom that the one God had chosen Israel to be his particular people to enjoy a special relationship under his rule. Think of this opening chapter in Ephesians that you've all read and familiarized yourself with, that he's chosen us. 
In other words, the language of chosen, of being the chosen people, Paul is taking this covenant notion and universalizing it. The covenant was always meant to be all-inclusive, and that's what Paul is saying in this opening section. I mean, actually, this is there in Galatians and Romans, the very books that they would use, that Paul's argument is that the law comes after the covenant. The law is not the foundation. The covenant is the foundation, and God makes the covenant. In other words, it's God reaching out to Abraham. So there's two steps, Stendhal and uh, E.P. Sanders. And so Sanders calls this covenantal gnomism. Let me define covenantal gnomism. It's the view that one's place in God's plan is established on the basis of the covenant, and that the covenant requires as the proper response of man his obedience to its commandments, while providing means of atonement for transgression. That's why Paul can say, I'm faultless, perfect. Not that he's without sin, but in terms of the law, of course he's faultless, because he's made the atonement. Obedience maintains one's position in the covenant. The point is not that it earns God's grace. Righteousness in Judaism is a term which implies the maintenance of a status among the group of the elect. So it's the covenant and then the law. You know, this is the idea that uh, the law is a tutor that guides us to the new covenant with Christ. I'm just going through Campbell. Campbell is saying, okay, this is why I believe what I believe about Ephesians. The third thing that Campbell notes is what is the, if you had to say what the center of Paul's gospel is, what is his soteriology? If you reject the Lutheran picture of Paul, what do you got? You know, what's, what's left? And then that's when he references Schweitzer. And all that we mean by Schweitzer is, well, this was people, you know, like Schweitzer noticed that actually the focus in the New Testament is being in Christ, not to endorse Schweitzer there. That at least, once you clear the ground, then there is the, the, the rise of a different understanding. Are all of you familiar with the work of Richard Hayes on, uh, I, I mentioned this earlier, on faith? The, the notion of faith. Campbell mentions this, that we re read the faith of, you know, as a kind of Jesus as the object of our faith. Faith is something that we do. And his point is, well, actually, that's a mistranslation, that it actually should be translated the faithfulness of Jesus. So, you know, think of Romans 3.21, God's righteousness through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. Christ is the faithful one. We just participate in Christ. Galatians 2.16, we have trusted in Christ Jesus so that we might be justified by Christ, not by works of the law. And we have believed in Christ so that we might be justified, is probably the right translation, by the faithfulness of Christ. It's a covenant relationship in which Christ keeps the covenant. He's faithful to the covenant, and we enter into that faithfulness. And so, the you know, the pistis Christo probably should not read faith in, but faith of. And then the fifth thing is Campbell's own uh, teacher who was reworking Paul's frame 
you know, repositioning Paul's text once you reject the, the Lutheran understanding. Campbell comes up with four emphases. And by the way, Campbell mentions Thomas Torrance and his son, James Torrance, and their focus then on, they fill out what is meant by covenant and the idea of a loving covenant. There's no more beautiful picture of love than in the book of Ephesians. You know, this is the foundation that we're building upon. This is from Torrance. Because the basis for the relationship is precisely this ground of love, the covenantal actor reaches out to the other, and the covenantal actor here is God, and establishes the relationship independently of any action by that party. It's unconditional is where we're going with this. It is therefore unconditional and gracious, and the relationship with the other is a gift. That's the definition of grace, right? The actor has all thereby functioned missiologically and incarnationally in the case of God, literally, in stretching to the other's location, and if necessary, meeting them right where she is. He is. Once established, moreover, this relationship extends through eternity. It's a covenant relationship of love. Campbell summarizes in another book his understanding of the gospel. Let me read his summary. And then he turns and says, and oh, and by the way, this is the summary. I won't give you all the references, but he's referring all over the New Testament, Paul's letters. Let me before I do the summary, let me say, okay, so Campbell says there's four points in Paul's gospel. A realized eschatology. So resurrection, ascension rule, we've done that. They come together as the predetermined, predestined plan of God. And so it's not simply future. That's there is certainly an a future fulfillment. Second, there is an undercutting of evil. It cuts to the root of sin in the sinful being of humanity and the present cosmic order. Uh, oppressive evil powers that have a, fo a foothold in the uh, corrupt being, sin and death, are defeated. What we learn in this gospel is that resurrection and enthronement defeat the powers. It tells us that the power of sin and evil is defeated in the defeat of death and that this power of death is that which is wielded by the principalities and powers. The gospel of Paul is the mystery revealed in this reign of the powers defeated, the reign over the powers. Satan's power over the nations is ended. He's referring to Ephesians throughout. And he talks about the Trinitarian and the participant. He talks about these as a singular subject. But in Ephesians, there's this Trinitarian focus, but it's focusing simultaneously on participation. And this is salvation. Is that your is that your third point? Yes. But the Trinitarian focus? Okay. Thanks. Perfect. I'm doing two things under this Trinitarian participation. So humankind was created for participation and relationship. You know, this is 532. He talks about marriage. A man shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one, quoting Genesis. And then Paul says, but I'm talking about Christ and the church, and this is a great mystery. Things in heaven and things on earth will be united. 
1.10. There will be unity between Jews and Gentiles, 3, 1 to 6. That Christians are to keep the unity of the Spirit, 4.3. There is one body, one Spirit, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of us all, 4, 4 to 6. And then he goes through and talks about the whole point of the church, the point of the apostles, the evangelists, uh, the building up the body of Christ, 4.13, until all of us attain to the unity of the faith. And then in 4.16, the whole body being joined together and united together by every binding ligament of support. And then this gospel unity is over and against. This is the defeat of the powers, this peace. You know, the breaking down of the dividing wall is the, the defeat of evil. And when 425, Christians become members of one another, and then they become uh, part of Christ's victory over the alienating power of death. That's three. And then four, this is unconditional. And this is the opening sentence, you know, three to 14. It's actually one sentence in Ephesians. No human act can initiate or affect the eschatological eruption of God or the Father's sending of the only Son. That is, this is apocalyptic, is what we're describing. People are simply caught up in the irresistible purposes and creativity of God. Paul opens Ephesians, you know, he chose us before him, chose him with him before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. And this was in accordance, 311, with his eternal purpose, which he carried out in Christ Jesus. This is the great insight of Karl Barth, that Christ is the predestined one. But of course, I think Barth may miss it. This is cosmic, I think, in, it, in its import. Uh, he made us alive together with Christ when we were dead in our transgressions. A new person, this is Campbell, a new person, a new humanity has been made. Campbell's point here is a very Eastern, I don't know if Eastern is the right word, that this second creation is primary and the first creation is subordinate to the second creation. That is, God's purposes in Christ are the purposes that he had in the creation to begin with. So he prefigured, uh, in Paul, the second clearly prefigured the first cosmically and vastly exceeds it. And now the summation, this is just Campbell's, this is from another book, he just sums up, okay, what's Paul's gospel? This is what he says. The secret of the universe and the point of the great narrative that encompasses us all is God's plan to draw us into a community imaged and formed by his resurrected son. The risen Jesus will have primacy, but also a, a rather extraordinary equality with those who surround him and look like him. Everyone in this community will therefore be a brother bearing the image of the resurrected one. Our destiny then is to be a band of brothers, which is to say a family he, he wants to use inclusive language here. I didn't fill that in. A family of siblings. This is God's great plan that lies at the heart of the cosmos. Its fulfillment is the story that enfolds us all, and it is the only story that really matters. 
throughout that quote, he just references, you know, various books of Paul. And then he, the next paragraph, he said, oh, and by the way, what I just said is summed up in one sentence in the book of Ephesians. The same notion is expounded at length in the opening section of Ephesians. There, Paul uses the form of a blessing entirely appropriately, since it is a blessing to convey the insight that fellowship with the triune God lies at the heart of the cosmos. Such is his enthusiasm that he articulates this notion in one sentence that runs for 12 verses, verses 3 to 14. In the Greek, it runs 12 verses. I don't think it, any of the English versions do that. This purpose existed before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him, having been chosen in love, verse 4. At the heart of the cosmos, its inception, its existence, and its future lies the divine plan to create us, to enjoy us in fellowship. And this plan entailed initiating this relationship by creating us and then calling us and drawing us into communion in the loving movement often known as election. The Greek literally meaning calling out, hence summoning. There is the gospel and there is Paul's gospel summed up in Ephesians verse 3 to 14. Now, what's strange, of course, is what's not said in that sentence, but Campbell's point I think the point that Paul is making, what we would so often think is primary is actually extraneous and not really part of Paul's gospel. What's the extraneous part that he left out? He did not focus, and I'm not saying in Ephesians this is absent, but he didn't do what Paul does in Galatians and Romans and talk about faith over and against the law. There's no mention of law in that sentence. There's no mention of faith over and against works. In other words, what many people would say the gospel is about, thinking particularly of a Lutheran or Calvinist atonement theory, the gospel is all about meeting the just requirements of the law. That is not there. Let me say something to David Rawls. No. <laughs> It's not penal substitution. <laughs> yes, that, that's what's missing. But penal substitution is missing. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have found this podcast valuable, please remember to share on social media. If you have questions about what you've heard, or if you'd like to learn more about how you can get involved with Forging Plowshares or even support this ministry financially, please visit our website, forgingplowshares.org.